Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 273. Today's episode is all about the power of knowing when to quit. We just don't like to quit things until we know there is no other choice. But the problem with that is that it's a question of what's the quality of life? Is this really worth considering? And thinking about if somebody, if you were looking at somebody else who was in that position, what would you be counseling them to do? The problem for us is that when we're in the decision, when it's our decision, it's very hard for us to see it that way. And what we think about instead is, but what if, what if I didn't need to do that yet? We want to butt up against that certainty. So in some ways you would have more peace of mind if you kept going until your dog was actually having seizures, because then you would know. The problem is that that's too late. That's stopping too late. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. We've all heard it before. A quitter never wins and a winner never quits. And sure, there's some truth in that. A lot of people give up on their dreams way too early or they don't start at all. But is it always true? What if I told you that quitting is actually one of the biggest keys to success? There's a difference between quitting and giving up. Quitting is strategic. It's knowing when to walk away from something that isn't working. It's knowing when to move on to something better. Giving up is different. Giving up is giving in. It's giving up on your dreams. It's giving up on yourself sometimes. Fun story, I actually dated a gambling addict for a few years. Some of the worst and weirdest years of my life. Well. He used to just hand me $100 bills so that I'd leave him alone to waste his money and also his life. Well, at first, I'd use the money for the spa or to pay my bills, and it seemed like a win-win. But before I knew it, I was spending hours in the high limit room just pumping hundreds into five play dollar video poker machines waiting for the free food bar at five. <laughs> Turns out it is super easy to spend thousands of dollars on nothing when the money is not yours. Well, there's a pretty well-known psychological phenomenon when it comes to gambling. You always feel like you're just on the brink of winning. But I've put $700 in this machine. It has to hit eventually. When you're not in it, it sounds a little crazy. But this actually happens in many areas of our lives. We stay in relationships that we know aren't working we stay at jobs that are sucking the life out of us. We stay in situations that we know we need to walk away from. So why do we do this? The answer is simple. 
we're afraid to quit. We're afraid of what will happen if we walk away. We're afraid of the unknown. We're afraid of failure. But here's the thing. The only way to find success is to be willing to fail. You have to be willing to walk away from something that isn't working. You have to be willing to take a risk. You have to be willing to quit. So if you're feeling stuck or if you're feeling like you're just spinning your wheels, ask yourself, is there something that I need to quit? And guess what? You probably already know the answer. We usually have that little nagging voice that we try to ignore. But easier said than done, right? So how do we actually know when the time is right? How do we assess our current situation and strategically determine that we're better off letting go? Well, that's what we're talking about today. Our guest is Annie Duke. For two decades, Annie was one of the top poker players in the world. Her expertise in the science of smart decision-making has helped her excel in everything from championship poker to public speaking. She's also a master storyteller, having performed three times for The Moth, which is a really cool organization that preserves the art of spoken word storytelling. So today she's going to share with us what she's learned through her academic studies in cognitive psychology combined with real-life decision-making experiences at the poker table. So three key things we will learn are how the paradox of quitting influences decision-making. Like if you quit on time, you'll feel like you quit too early. What forces work against good quitting behavior? And how to think in expected value in order to make better decisions, as well as other best practices. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Annie Duke back to the show. Well, thank you for having me back. So last time you were here, we talked about how to decide. And now we're talking about knowing when to walk away. What inspired this new topic? You know, when I was writing my last book, How to Decide, you know, I was thinking about how valuable the option to quit is, uh, mainly because when you decide things, which is a lot of what I've written about and thinking about and how to decide, you know very little in comparison to everything there is to be known. I mean, like, Melissa, I'm sure that you've had that feeling of, you know, I I wish I knew then what I know now. Oh, yeah. A thousand times. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's that feeling of, gosh, you know, when I have to start things, I don't know very much and I'm going to learn a whole bunch of stuff after the fact. And the thing is that if that's the situation we're in as decision makers, which is like super difficult... Then when we learn that new information, we have this really valuable thing we can do, which is we can walk away, we can change our mind, we can quit what we're doing. When that information says, hey, it's not turning out the way you had hoped. Things aren't going that well. There's better ways that you could be spending your time. So I thought about that a little bit, how valuable that option is. In um, my last book, I wrote a tiny bit about it, a few paragraphs at most. But when I was actually promoting that book, I found myself really wanting to explore this a lot more, particularly because even though this thing is very valuable, like this chance to change your mind, that like the first person you date is not the person you have to marry. 
right? Which is like such a helpful thing for us in the situation that we're in, in terms of our decisions, that we don't, we're actually pretty bad at, at using that option. We don't quit enough of the time. There's lots and lots and lots of science behind it, but I just really decided I wanted to kind of dive headlong into that problem of we got this big gift, which is that we can change our mind when we get new information. We can walk away and do something different, but we don't do it enough. We tend to do that too late. So that's a book was born out of that curiosity, I guess. It's interesting because when you were talking, I've prided myself for years on my willingness to change my mind. But for mm-hmm. some reason, I haven't been able to apply that as well in the area of quitting. <laughs> I'm actually right. going through a number of things right now where I'm like, okay, well, does this still make sense to do in my business? Can I reform this? And I've been holding on to certain things for too long, just like you said, because I I think there's a lot of unknowns around it. I've, but really what it comes down to, the deeper underlying thing, is that I feel like the quit is a fail. Mm -hmm. Why do we have this stigma around quitting where I know I'm not the only one who associates those two things, but it's just so odd to me that I'm fine with the idea of changing my mind, but the moment that it also involves quitting something, (laughs) it just gets to me. Yeah, because it's it's shutting a door, right? So the thing is, there's all sorts of things that we do. And let's say that you are actually failing at it. It's not until you quit that you have failed, that you've shut the door on never being able to turn it around. So like in the simplest sense, if I, if I, if I have a stock at 50 and it goes to 40, if I sell it, that means I can't ever, it, I won't be there for it going back to 50. And now this, this isn't the way that you should think about anything, obviously, because what you should care about is, is that would I buy that stock today? Like that should be the only part of that decision. And that's true of the, of jobs, relationships, so on and so forth. The only question you should ask yourself is knowing what I know now, is this a job that I would take today? Right. If I think about the, the day that I decided to take the job, if I knew all the stuff that I know now, would I take it? But it's not really the way we think because once we've put time and effort into something, we feel like if we walk away, it's a failure that we're never going to be able to turn it around. We won't be able to make it work, that the time that we put into whatever we're doing will have been wasted. And those feelings are really powerful and they make it incredibly hard for us to quit. That's separate and apart from something that you mentioned, which I think is really important, which is the unknown. What does it mean if I quit? What is that going to look like? How is that going to turn out? And we have this real aversion to that kind of ambiguity. We don't like to sort of like go into the wilderness to the point where, you know how they say like, we prefer the devil we know to the devil we don't. Yeah. Yeah. So that that kind of ends up getting into that, that like, I'd rather stay in a job that I, or that it's not fulfilling me because what if I go to a new job and I don't like it? What if I can't find a new job, right? Like all of these things start to plague us, even though the thing we're doing, we actually have a lot of information about that we don't like it. But we don't want to switch because we're afraid of the uncertainty. We're afraid of kind of what comes along with that, of not knowing. And it makes us stick to a lot of things that we that really aren't doing any good for us. I see that because what I found, I told you I'm in the weeds of something right now. And already what's helping is actually just being willing to get into those weeds. It's so easy to just avoid it, not <laughs> dig into this email list or whatever it is that I'm going through <laughs> where I'm like, I don't know, is this even working? Like, uh, yeah. And so now I'm actually seeing the numbers and getting more data rather than just sort of knowing this thing over here isn't the best and I want to reform it. I don't know what 
I'm going to do with it. What I also find interesting is that often when we quit, we still have uncertainty. We wonder if we could have turned that around. (laughs) I have an odd example for this. Earlier this year in May, my dog of 15 years passed and I had to put him down. And honestly, I kept being told like, you know, it's better too early than too late. I started getting really terrified that he was going to like start seizing and we wouldn't be able to do anything at that point. But it's such a hard decision to make. And I swear to you, since I put him down every day, I wonder if I did that too early or if that was the right decision. It's so hard. And I have to tell you, this is, this is part of the problem is that when we're already on a path, right? Like with your dog, you, you already have your dog, you know, as part of your life. We're, we think much more, like we're so worried about a couple of things. One is like the what ifs, right? Which is what you're describing. Maybe I did it too early. Maybe he could have hung on for another four months. And maybe I gave that up. In the same way, actually, that like, think about it like this way, like, why is it that people will continue? Sorry, why is it that will people continue like climbing up Everest, even in the middle of a snowstorm? Because if they turn around, they're always going to wonder what if, what if I kept going, maybe I could have made it to the summit. So that's incredibly powerful. That desire for certainty that we have, it's like a siren song saying, I want to know, I want to know how it would have turned out. So what ends up happening, and this is something really insightful that Richard Thaler told me, who's a Nobel laureate in economics. What he said was, we're not willing to quit until we no long, until it's really no longer a choice. That's when we're actually willing to quit is when it's not a choice anymore. And what he meant by that is that, and it's what you're feeling, is that you feel like you put your dog down at a point where maybe, maybe he could have had a little more time. That's really hard, Right. And it's true for something like that, just as much as it's true for like, we don't want to turn around on the mountain until we don't have a choice. We don't want to quit our job until we know for sure there's no turning it around because we're not getting out of bed. And we've used all our sick days and we've used all our vacation days trying to avoid going into the office. We just don't like to quit things until we know there is no other choice. But the problem with that is that, you know, it's a question of like in the case of your dog, It's a question of what's the quality of life? Is this really worth considering? And thinking about if somebody, if you were looking at somebody else who was in that position, what would you be counseling them to do? And what I'm guessing is that in that situation with a dog that was that old, with the recommendation of the vet, knowing what all the possibilities were suffering, that you would say you should put them down. The problem for us is that when we're in the decision, when it's our decision, it's very hard for us to see it that way. And what we think about instead is, but what if, what if I didn't need to do that yet? We want to butt up against that certainty. So in some ways you would have more peace of mind if you kept going until your dog was actually having seizures, because then you would know. The problem is that that's too late. That's stopping too late. So, I mean, hopefully that will relieve you of some of the what ifs. I don't, I don't know, but this, I mean, it's a very heartbreaking example of how we just, we need to be sure before we're willing to walk away. But when we're sure, it's long after we probably should have. 
That does make sense. And that is what I've been told. Connecting it to my own emotional system is more difficult than actually seeing the logic of it. But there's another layer to this. You talk about how we're actually really poor at calibrating our grit and quit decisions. And in particular, when the world gives us bad news, we tend to persevere too long. But when we get good news, we tend to quit too soon. Can you go deeper on that? We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now for another episode of lies we've been told about our health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. You talk about how we're actually really poor at calibrating our grit and quit decisions. And in particular, when the world gives us bad news, we tend to persevere too long. But when we get good news, we tend to quit too soon. Can you go deeper on that? There's a great example. It was a study that was done on New York City cab drivers, which I think shows this problem with our calibration. So it's really interesting. So Colin Cameron and a bunch of colleagues, Richard Thaler was among them, looked at trip sheets from cab drivers in the 1980s. So this was before Uber. And the way that it used to work was that there would be somebody who owned the cab and the drivers would generally be renting the cab from the owners. 
And they would, uh, the way it worked was they would rent in a 12 hour shift. So you would get the cab from 10 a.m. in the morning until 10 at night. Melissa, you could choose to drive anywhere in there. So you you have a choice about when you actually want to use the cab. You don't have to drive for 12 hours. So you're kind of like an independent contractor in this case. What the researchers wanted to figure out was, okay, given that the drivers have a choice about when they're driving and when they're not, how good is their decision-making around when they're choosing to drive and when they're not? In the sense of this way, let's just intuit this, right? Like, Melissa, when do you think the, the driver should be staying in their cabs? When should they be driving a lot? Probably in the evening. Because why? What's going on in the evening? There's more people out and about getting up and doing stuff, drinking. That's exactly (laughs) right. There's lots of fairs around. So whether it's like morning rush hour or, you know, evening rush hour or maybe Saturday night in an area where there's lots of nightlife or whatever, they should be staying in their cabin driving when they're picking up a lot of people, when there's lots and lots of fairs around. So when should they get out of their cab? When when should they quit? The opposite, right? Like when there aren't a lot of fairs around. So that seems pretty obvious to us looking from the outside in. But when they looked at the trip sheets, they found something super puzzling. When the fares were kind of fast and furious, right? So you could look at the trip sheets and you could see like how much time it was between each fare. Mm-hmm. So when they saw that the the drivers were like getting lots and lots of fares, like the fares were coming pretty quickly, the drivers quit really early. But when it was really slow and there were no riders around to pick up, they stayed in their cab forever. So that's really weird, right? Right? It's like the opposite of what they should be doing. It's so much the opposite of what they should be doing that they were costing themselves. They would have made 15% more money if they had st- stayed in the cab when there were lots of fares and just quit and walked away when there were very few. So they were able to calculate that. Even if they had just used like a random strategy, which was like, I'm going to get the cab, I'm going to drive for six hours they would have made 8% more than they actually were. Okay, so so they're flipped. They're sticking around when they shouldn't and they're quitting when, also when they shouldn't. And they're flipped on that decision. So Camera really wanted to find out, like, well, why is this? Like, what's going on? And so he, like, asked them. And he was like, well, tell me, like, what's determining whether you stick in or quit? Like, what what's making you drive or not drive? And what they told him was that they had an earnings goal for the day. So let's say they were like, I want to make $300 today. What would happen is that as soon as they made the $300, they would stop driving. They would just quit. But if they didn't make the $300, they would keep driving until they did. Okay, so now, like, can you see how this explains the behavior? Because if there's lots of fares around, they get to that 300 really fast, to that earnings goal really quick. Uh, But if there aren't any fares around, it takes them a really, really, really long time to get to that goal. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And yeah, it makes me wonder, is that an internal decision? Or (laughs) like, where'd that earnings goal come from? They said it for themselves. Mm. Again, they're they're not working for anybody, right? Like they're just renting the cap. So they're setting that goal for themselves. And what you can see is happening is this miscalibration, which is kind of that quit when you're ahead, right? Like if, it's really funny because if you look at all the aphorisms around quitting, most of them tell you never, ever quit. You know, like winners never quit, quitters never win. That's basically like quitters are losers, right? That's what it's saying. <laughs> yeah. um, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. But there's one that's positive toward quitting, which is quit while you're ahead. But that's actually really bad advice. And you can see why that's bad advice with the cab drivers because ahead for them was I've reached my goal and then they wanted to quit. 
Whereas behind for them was, I haven't reached my goal. So therefore, I'm going to stick. I mean, better advice would be quit when you're behind. That would be better. But it still wouldn't be exactly. What would actually be right is quit when you're ahead if the thing you're doing is no longer worthwhile. So that's different, right? Or quit when you're behind unless the thing you're doing is still worthwhile. It's that part of it that we have a lot of trouble with is, is what does it mean for something to be worthwhile? And we tend to sort of apply these simple rules in order to make these decisions. So if you were to apply the the more complicated rule to the cab drivers, you would say like, quit when you're ahead unless what you're doing is still worthwhile. And by the way, you just picked up like 10 fares in a row. There's no reason to think that's going to slow down right now. You should probably keep going. But they don't, right? Because they're using like a very simple heuristic to just a rule of thumb to decide when they're sticking and quitting. So there, there's like, I think such a good example of how we can get so miscalibrated on things. Yeah. It's like, take the weekly average, <laughs> like right. figure this well, out. Like this well, could be Well, again, obvious. if they just said, I'm just going to drive six hours, they would do like, don't even do anything as, as complicated as necessarily trying to figure out like stay when there's lots of fares or not. You can just go, I'm going to drive six hours. You'd do better. That makes sense. It's interesting thinking about the like them sticking in their cars when they know nobody's driving around. I feel like that'd be plenty of time to think that maybe the strategy isn't working, but we do it in so many things. And where I can relate to it, I dated a gambling addict for a long time. And so henceforth, I also had gambling behaviors just during this time. For some reason, I had no problem never gambling again after we broke up. But it, it reminds me of being in the high limit room and pumping money into the stupid <laughs> the video poker machines that was my thing and i remember this one time in particular because i have a facebook album of it because i just kept winning and i was like thousands and thousands of dollars up i got like four royal flushes that day and like a bunch of four of a kinds with like a kicker <laughs> and then all of a sudden i started losing but i wanted to make that money back and i lost almost yeah. all of it because i just could not stop <laughs> pumping money in to trying to recoup. I'm like, it's got to hit eventually, but it wouldn't. And it's so applicable to like all areas of life. You're like sitting in that job that you hate and you think like if you stay another year, something's going to change, you're going to like it or like you're going to lose your investment of the 12 years before or whatever it is. I think you call that escalation of commitment. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think that, that your story about the slot machine is so insightful. And I think it's something everybody can relate to, which is, that understanding like that that feeling of losing is it's a cognitive phenomenon a psychological phenomenon it's not doesn't map onto real life because what you're pointing out is like let's say that you you started off you know you were playing the slot machine and you got up $10,000 right so now that's your new that kind of becomes your new baseline so when you lose like 4,000 of it back the fact is you're still up $6,000, like in reality, like if you were objective, but it's not the way we think about it, right? You 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 just described it perfectly, right? Well, I was losing and I wanted to get my money back. Well, <laughs> and I had never even held the money. <laughs> right. You were losing compared to what your high watermark was, right? So this is something that I think that we really need to be very careful about when it comes to these problems of escalation of commitment, which is getting signals that you should walk away and then not doing it, right? So the slot machines were signaling to you, hey, uh, you got pretty lucky to get where you are because by the way, if you keep going, you'll always lose to the slot machines. So maybe you should quit now. 
But from your perspective, like, no, I'm going to keep going because I want to get back what, what I've lost, except that you hadn't actually lost anything, which I think is really interesting, right? So I'll give you like an example that I think might feel kind of similar to you. Uh, you can tell me if it does or not. Uh, and it actually relates even to the cab drivers, right? Because you want to sort of finish at that 10,000. You don't want to have lost what you already sort of had gained. So there's there's this wonderful story. And I think this is very similar to your story of Siobhan O'Keefe. I wouldn't say a wonderful story. Let's call it a kind of surprising and somewhat alarming story <laughs> of Siobhan O'Keefe, who was running in the 2019 marathon. And on mile four, she starts experiencing this kind of like bad pain in her leg. And then on mile eight, her fibula bone snaps. So she like literally breaks her leg. Now, tell me, do you share the intuition that I do that if I were running that race and I broke my leg on mile eight, I would stop running? <laughs> yeah, I don't think that'd be a question for me, but. <laughs> right. Well, except that it should be a question for you because she did keep running against medical advice. She kept running. And in fact, finished the marathon. Oh my God. Right? So, and by the way, just in case you think that she's like an odd duck, there were three other people who broke like an ankle or something in that same race who finished. And if you just sort of Google like broken bone, finishing marathon, you'll be surprised. This happens all the time. We as humans are much more like Siobhan O'Keefe than we think. Now, now, first of all, let me just ask you something. Like, I want you to be honest with me, Melissa. When you hear that story, isn't there part of you that's like, wow, what a tough cookie. I kind of wish I were that tough. You know, I think the me five years ago would have, but the older I get, the more I'm like, I'm not screwing up my body. Like, there's no way I'm so careful with this machine. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. Right. So like the you of five years ago is like, oh, I wish I were that gritty. Yeah. Right. And of course, what you recognize because you have experience is that, no, that's there's nothing to admire about that. Like if she loved running, then if you keep running on a broken leg, you're like risking like a compound fracture. Like you might never run another race again in your life. Like, no, that's not good. So the question is like, why did she keep running? And it's a little bit the same problem as why did you keep playing that slot machine? Um, And the answer is because there was a finish line. 
So even though she had run eight miles more than zero, so like objectively, she had accomplished something. She was short of the finish line by 18.2 miles. And that would be true. Like, imagine how sad you'd be, Melissa, if you ran 20 miles of a marathon and for some reason you had to stop. So we can bring it back to like your dog, right? Like you'd be sad. And then wouldn't you also be wondering a little bit like, but what if I kept going? Could I have done that extra 6.2 miles? Yeah, I see think you'd be left with those feelings of what if? Because for some reason I can understand, like I don't think I would partially summit Everest and stop and go back. I just don't know if I would. I don't know. It depends how cold I was. I really don't like the cold. I don't think I'd sign up for it in general, but I can see where that is. For some reason, a marathon doesn't hold that weight to me. But the moment that I've invested that, the training and everything, like when I see people having to drop out of the Olympics and things like that, I am pulled where I'm like, oh my gosh, all that training. So yeah, I think it's just that because the marathon isn't personal to me, it's harder to be like, why are you still running? But the moment that you invest in it, then it is personal to you you. So that's exactly right. So like, and I think you can feel that, right? Like, because you're not a marathon runner, it probably doesn't feel as weird to stop on mile eight. But if I told you, what if you stopped on mile 22? Mm. Because then you're so close, right? Yeah, I might hobble it over. (laughs) And but if and if you had to quit, wouldn't you be left with the same what ifs? Yeah, I think I would have ran on maybe I just wasn't tough enough. (laughs) Maybe I should have kept going. Yeah. So, but how silly is that? Because you ran 20 miles or 22 miles. Right? Like, that's way more than zero. The problem is it's the slot machine problem, is that we don't count the 22 miles that we gain. We count the four miles or whatever that we're short of the finish line. And that was what was happening to you in the slot machine. You weren't counting that maybe you were up 6,000 from when you sat in the seat. You were counting that you were down 4,000 from what your high water mark was and immediately you set a finish line for yourself as soon as you hit the high water mark 10 let's say you were up $10,000 I know I'm making that up right but let's say you were up 10,000 or 1,000 or whatever it was that you were up that now becomes your finish line it becomes your new baseline and anything short of that is going to feel like uh really bad it's going to feel like you failed and you're not going to want to walk away from it and I think that you brought up something that's really important because you had an intuition, right? Which is what feels worse? Sort of decide, like never thinking you want a marathon, never trying, never running a mile of a marathon because you'd never tried or deciding to train for a marathon, starting the race and having to quit on mile 20, which feels worse to you. Yeah, the second one. Right, but that's weird because in the second one, you ran a lot. And the first one, you didn't do anything. <laughs> I know. I know. That's the thing about finish lines, right? And we set finish lines for us all the time, right? I mean, whether it's like the amount of money that you want to win at the slot machine or how far you want to run in a race or a project deadline or, you know, personal goals, like whatever those things are, they have a downside to them, which is that they can make us keep heading toward them. That brings up such an interesting point because whenever we're coached on goal setting, it's like, well, set that bar for yourself. What is it? And so if that's what we're sort of told to do, that's what we think makes a successful goal setter or anyone who succeeds in anything, then what is a better way to set a goal so that we don't get caught in some of those cognitive traps? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, so here's the rub, right? If you 
I'm not talking about like goals that are sort of broad. Like I want to be a nicer person. I want to feel fulfilled in my life. Things like that. They aren't, those things are not going to cause these problems. It's the goals that are associated with a specific, a specific endeavor that we've entered into where the goal itself is quite specific, right? Which is like the case in a marathon. But this is where, you know, if you're familiar in business with like uh, objectives and key results, OKRs, Mm -hmm. or key performance indicators, KPS, these kinds of things. Like this idea of goal setting is very popular, that they need to be clear, they need to be specific, you know, timelines associated with them, so on and so forth, that that's going to help us to achieve what we want to achieve. Super popular idea. And not wrong. I just want to be clear about that. Not wrong. I mean, as you can imagine, if you're going to continue to run toward the finish line of a marathon with a broken leg, then under other circumstances, it's more likely to motivate you to keep going, even though you just might be physically uncomfortable or tired or your legs hurt, right? So having that specific goal does allow you to power through the tough stuff for an objective that is often well worthwhile powering through that tough stuff. The downside is that it gets you to do it kind of no matter what, even if you broke your leg. So that's the thing that we're trying to avoid. The way to help you with that is when you set a goal to make sure there's an unless with it. So like in a simple sense, I'm going to run the marathon unless the medical professionals tell me that I should stop. That would be like an unless that you would attach to it. So that would encompass a lot of things like dehydration, broken bones, so on and so forth, right? Where they could tell you, no, like you really need to stop. Then you could say, I'm going to run unless they tell me to stop. Now, in all the cases of people who kept running these races, the medical professionals were telling them to stop by the way they ignored them and kept going. Now, part of like, you know, I imagine like, I feel like when people hear me say that, they're like, but that's dumb because how is that different than the medical professionals actually telling you to stop, right? Like if you're not going to listen to them in the moment, why does it matter if when you set the goal of running the marathon that you say in advance, I'm going to run this marathon unless the medical professionals tell me to stop. What's the difference between those two things? And it turns out that there's a huge difference between those two things, that there's something about doing it in advance, identifying the signals that might occur in the world that would tell you that you should stop something and follow, you know, and committing to follow through on that, that makes you much more likely to do that than trusting yourself to be rational when you get that same information in the moment. So if you enter a marathon without thinking about those things uh, in advance, then when you encounter them, you're more likely to ignore them in order to keep going. And the reason why you're more likely to ignore them in order to keep going is because that's the moment where you have to say, like, I failed. That's the moment where you have to say there's no getting to the finish line. And I know I'm going to have to live with those what ifs that really plague us all. So when you commit in advance, it just makes it a lot easier for you. It turns out it really improves your ability to follow through on whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. So those unlesses are something that I call kill criteria. So I just say like when you start something, implied in starting something is that there's now a finish line involved, right? There's some sort of goal that you're trying to achieve with what you start. And that's all fine and good. But at the moment that you start, you should really set out what those kill criteria are. Like, what are the things that I could see in the future that would tell me that, you know, I ought to turn around? Because you're much more likely to do it than trusting yourself to pay attention to those things when you do actually see them and figuring out what to do on the fly. I can see that because I know myself and I know that if I were in that sort of middle of the moment decision making, I'd be like, no, I'm not 
making this decision out of emotion, which is ridiculous because... Because of course you are. Yes. It's, well, and it's also the opposite. Like, it'd be a more logical decision for me to stop than it would be <laughs> to keep going. But I would be... Like, I, I don't know if I would be able to see that. So yeah, I can, I have even done the opposite when there's a goal that I know I want to keep going. Here's an example. When I set a goal to have a morning routine and have my meditation practice, I create my oh shit plans around that. And it's like, okay, well, right. if something comes up, then I don't want it to just be a wash because I also know that historically, say I've done a morning routine and then something comes up one day, then it's easier for something to come up the next day. And then once I've missed three days, then it doesn't feel like I have this morning routine anymore. It doesn't even feel like I need to show up. When am I going to restart? I can push that day off forever. So I always have like, okay, if I miss this, then first, can I do a shorter morning routine? Second, if that's not even available, then I'll do it at three o'clock. <laughs> if that's not even available, pretend like this day never happened, whatever it is. And so it's almost like my plan to keep going. But that is a very low stakes, like, you know, it's for my higher self anyways. I need that revamp time. I already know that it's for, <laughs> like, there's not a lot of downsides. Like, is this still working for me? I don't think I should meditate anymore. I'm getting in my head too much. Like that's never been a problem. But I'm curious when you're creating kill criteria for something like a job, because I know a lot of people struggle with that. It's like, okay, I've invested 12 years in this job. How do would you create kill criteria for that? Both if you're just starting a new job, and then also, can you still do it if you've you're just learning this information and you've been in the job a decade already? So first of all, what you just said, I think is so important, which is the 12 years you've put into it doesn't matter. And I know that's really weird and and kind of hard for people to hear, but it doesn't. You've already put the 12 years in. It's already gone. If you quit, you're not going to have wasted those 12 years. That doesn't make any sense. It already happened. What you should think about is not, I've already put 12 years into it, is, is the next year that I might put into this good for me in comparison to the other things that I might be doing? with that exact same time. And I think that that's something really important for people to understand. And it's it's a very, very strong cognitive bias. It's called the sunk cost fallacy, that we think that the time that we've already spent in something matters, but it doesn't. I mean, where it does matter is like, uh, if you know the ropes of your job, it might increase the likelihood that you'll have a good outcome over the next year in your job over a new place where you would have to learn new ropes. But notice that that doesn't have anything to do with the 12 years that you've put into it or what you might waste if you walk away. It's just that you may have an advantage in the job going forward compared to other jobs. The problem is that if you're actually considering quitting your job, it probably means you're already really miserable. And my guess is you've been miserable for a really long time. And so you have the information that you need to know that the next year is not going to go well. You already have it because you have a lot of certainty around how you feel in that job. And part of what stops us from quitting is exactly what you just said. But what about the 12 years I've already put into it? And that's really a shame because waste isn't really a backward looking problem. All I've wasted the 12 years I just spent. Waste is a forward looking problem. I don't want some worry about the 12 years I've already spent to cause me to waste another year in this job. That's that's how we need to start thinking about waste. So how can we get to these decisions a little more quickly by using kill criteria? Basically, you can list out and say, what is it that's making me miserable in this job? And write down what those things are and then say, all right, these are the things which I'm miserable about. How long 
if I really think about it this moment, how long can I really take this for, right? So maybe it's three months. Maybe you've, you've got another three months in you. If that's the case, say, all right, so what would I see in three months that would tell me that nothing has changed or, or that not enough has changed, right? So like if you have a toxic boss and they're still toxic and the behaviors are still there in three months, like you need to commit that when you see that those behaviors are still there, that you'll walk away. And in addition to that, what you can do is say, well, what could I do to try to make the, the situation better? That's going to get you to start thinking about inputs, right? Maybe I could have a discussion with my boss. Maybe I could switch to a different, you know, under a different leader, whatever it might be, sort of to try to figure those things out. But if it's still the same in three months, now you've actually set that out for yourself that you know what you're going to do about it in the future. So it doesn't really matter whether it's when you're starting or when you're 12 years in. Just on some sort of regular cadence, you should say over the next three months or over the next six months, what are the things that I could see that would tell me that things are going well? What are the things I could see that would tell me that things are going poorly? And if things are going to, or things are going poorly, I need to make a commitment to how I'm going to act on that. And what you don't want to have happen is, you know, you you come to this decision, like, should I quit or not? 12 months in, I'm 12 years in rather. And then you're like, oh, but maybe things will turn around. But you aren't specific about what that means. You don't set yourself a timeline. Like, what's the deadline here? You have a discussion. The, the discussion with your boss feels like it goes pretty well. And then three months later, you're kind of back in the same situation. But you're still in the situation of not wanting to have wasted the time that you've already put into the job. So there's all these forces telling you not to walk away and not give up the cause. And so then you rinse and repeat. And Melissa, you have to know people like that. I'm thinking of like three people. <laughs> I'm already like, should I send Who this just episode rinse and repeat, early? Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And and the interesting thing is that when we're the friend of that person, it's very frustrating because you can see it really clearly. Like we just had this discussion three months ago and now you're telling me nothing's changed and yet you're still saying, but maybe I can turn it around. And then it goes on for three more months and then you see them again and they're in the exact same situation and it just kind of buildings on, builds on itself. And the problem is that, you know, so now it's like a year later. Well, now you don't want to waste 13 years instead of 12 years. And you can see how that builds on itself. And as a friend, when you're looking from the outside in, it's really frustrating. But what you have to know is that you're doing this all the time yourself and your friends are getting frustrated with you. We just don't realize it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I'm. It's especially frustrating coaching people through relationship issues <laughs> where they come back and it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I can only hear this so many times where I need to cut it off, let alone I know how you, you right. are feeling. And then, and then what happens, which, which I think is so, so important to this idea that we get to these decisions too late is, you know, they say, well, I don't want to leave now because I put a year into it. And then they spend another six months and then they spend another six months. And then it's, I've put two years into it. And then I've put three years into it. And meanwhile, they've never been really happy. 
not since the first time that you had the, the discussion. So now what happens is when they do finally break it off, what do they say every single time? I you know, after done this they sooner. get over, <laughs> I wish I'd done that sooner. As soon as they're over the heartbreak, right? As soon as they can kind of see a little bit more clearly because they're over the heartbreak. Oh, I should have done that a long time ago. Like nobody ever says like I jumped the gun. Yeah. Not on something like that. And that's where you're seeing that time and energy that you put into things. And and then the other thing, and I bet you hear this, is going back to what you said about the unknowns is, you know, don't they say to you sometimes like, but what if I break up with them and then I don't find someone new? Or what if I break up with them and I start dating someone new and that's not a good relationship? I bet you've heard that before too. Yeah. I mean, everyone's got that fear of, is the new thing going to be as good as this, even though they don't see how crappy the thing they have? <laughs> but the, it's even worse than that because often they do. Mm. So I, I had a, this conversation with this wonderful woman named Dr. Sarah Olsten Martinez. And she was an ER doctor who had been promoted to be a, an administrator. And so by the time I talked to her, most of her time was spent on the administration stuff. She was only doing six shifts in the ER a month. So not not too many. Uh, and the rest of her time was administrative work. So she had reached out to me because she was struggling with a quitting decision. I think she had heard me on a podcast, maybe like, you know, at that point where I was working through the ideas for the book. So she thought maybe I would have something to say about quitting because she had another job in the offing. So I said, sure, like, I'd love to talk to you. I mean, because I was writing a book on the topic. And so we got on the Zoom and she's describing this her work to me. And it's everything is like, and then I'm really unhappy and I'm really unhappy. And the main reason she was unhappy was that her work was impinging on her family life too much. Like the administrative work, unlike the ER work, was 24-7. So it was always like emails and phone calls. And she was like staring at her phone instead of like interacting with her small children. And it was making her totally miserable. And it was also clear from the conversation that this had been going on a long time. That it wasn't just like she was miserable the last month. She'd been miserable for over a year, like two years, like a long time. So I, you know, I hope you can imagine, I was a little confused. And I'm like, well, why? She's so unhappy. Like, why is she reaching out to me about this quitting decision? So I said to her, well, so I'm just wondering, like, what is it that's holding you back from taking the new job? And she said, well, what if I hate that job also? Like, what if I'm miserable in that job too? And I said, oh, you know, like a light bulb went off for me. So what I asked her was, well, let me ask you a question. Like, imagine it's a year from now and you've stayed in the job you're currently in. What are the chances you're going to be happy? You know, when I talk to in a year, you in a year. And she said, uh, well, 0%. Like, I already know. I'm really unhappy already. I don't think anything is going to change. I don't think it's going to get better. So zero. Like, I'm not going to be happy in a year. And I said, okay. So I know you're afraid that maybe if you take the new job, you won't be happy either. But like, what are the chances of that? Like, it's a year from now you're in this new job what are the chances you're not happy there? She said, well, I don't know. I haven't done it before. I said, well, just take your best guess. She said, I don't know, like 50-50, like maybe half the time I'm happy and half the time I'm not. I said, well, is 50% greater than zero? And it was this light bulb that went off for her where she realized like, oh my gosh, I'm willing to, in the thing that I'm doing, I'm willing to tolerate a certitude. Like I'm dead certain I'm going to be unhappy because I'm afraid that I might be unhappy in the new thing. But I'm going to be like the likelihood that I'm happy is a lot greater. Like half the time I'm going to be happier. And isn't that that has to be better for me? And so she quit and she switched to the new job. And last I talked to her, she was really happy. It's such a simple way to frame things. <laughs> and that sometimes we're just not able to do it within ourselves. But 
there's a point that you brought up in your book that kind of hit home for me where it's like, when we commit to any course of action, by default, we're committing to not pursuing other things. And so in that example, right. it's like, yeah, you think you're not committing to anything because you're, you're star- staying where you are, but you're actually committing to your own unhappiness because that's the only thing you know is that this one thing is not what's making you happy. And you're cu- closing yourself off to all of these other things. But I guess the final question I'd like to ask uh, around that, though, is I do know that so often the things that people commit to is wrapped up in their identities, whether Mm -hmm. it is their relationship and they've got a big circle of friends and everyone knows them as Janie and Joe together, or it's their like the business that they started that secretly isn't really working, but nobody sees that or whatever it is, it becomes who they are. How do you get people to unravel that so they can stop committing to this thing that they've identified with that's also not making them happy because it is kind of complicated. I mean, this the identity piece is like so hard because the hardest thing to quit is who you are. It's really hard to walk away from that. And, you know, we have certain beliefs that define us. And in particular, there's kind of two things that cause a belief to really define us. One is has to do with a group membership because we really, like a lot of our identity is is tied up with the group that we belong to. But then also it's the people that we're distinct from. So when we have a belief that makes us stand out from the crowd, it's also very hard to walk away from it. So, you know, so we get kind of wrapped up in like our our beliefs kind of create who we are or the things that we do, which like one of the things that Sarah Olson Martinez said to me was like, but I'm an ER doctor. Well, as opposed to like, I practice medicine, right? It's I'm an ER doctor. And so she was really worried if she walked away, like, what does that mean for me? Am I still the same person? So it's very, very hard for all of us. When we think about cults, for example, where I think most of us are very confused as to why people hold on to their beliefs within a cult when there's like obvious evidence that those beliefs aren't true. And this thing about how identity really impedes walking away from things, really shed some light on that. There was a very famous case of a cult called the Seekers from 1954. Um, They were a doomsday cult. They believed that aliens from the planet Clarion were going to wipe out humanity by flooding the earth, but they were going to rescue the the true believers. So there was going to be like a spaceship that came down and like rescued the true believers. And those true believers were the Seekers, which was this cult that was founded by a woman named Marion Keach. So there was a psychologist who caught wind of this. His name was Leon Festinger, and he and his colleagues like infiltrated the cult because they wanted to understand like what happens when the aliens don't come. Remember, it was a doomsday cult, so they had predicted a day that this would happen. It was, I think, December 20th, 1954, and that is when this was going to occur. So they wanted to be around for that, the psychologists, because they wanted to understand like when when that doesn't happen, do they all just leave or do they stick around, right? Like that was the question. So they're there and and the clock strikes midnight, which is when they were supposed to, the aliens were supposed to come and rescue these cult members. And the thing is that almost, you know, very few, there were, I think there were two, maybe two members of the cult quit, but everybody else stuck around. And not only did they, did they stick around, but they really escalated their commitment to the cause. In other words, the people who were a little bit more lukewarm on the cult before became much more zealot, um, uh, zealous in their beliefs about the cult. This was after like, it was demonstrated to them that the beliefs weren't correct. But how do you walk away from that? You've probably like disowned your family. You've given away your worldly goods. You've staked your whole life 
on the idea that this cult is true. You've done things that from the outside look very silly based on this belief. So if now all of a sudden, just because it was disproved, like how, how do you go back from that? That's really hard. And the thing is like, I know everybody's like, well, they're in a cult. Okay, but we're all in a cult. Whether it's like, I'm in the cult that is, I'm an ER doctor and I'm worried about what the other ER doctors are going to say. And if I walk away from now, you know, this now, what does that mean for me? I used to be a poker player. It was very hard for me to quit. Because what does that mean? That's how I defined myself. That's not only was that how I defined myself, but that was how the public knew me. So if I walk away, like, what does that mean? Who am I? I think these are very, very hard for us to to think through and deal with. I think the really important thing for us is to always think about kind of a couple things. One is, what could I be doing with my time if I weren't doing this? I think that gets you focused on the opportunity costs. And the other thing is we have to stop defining ourselves by what we do or who we are, right? And we have to start thinking about sort of what the long, longer-term goals are for, for what it means to be our identity, which what it means, like what our identity really means, which hopefully is around finding the truth, not just belonging to a group. But these are very deep instincts that we have as human beings, and they're super hard to overcome. Yeah, and at first, asking yourselves those questions seems scary. It's like, who am I without this? But if you just switch your mindset around them to curiosity, it can Mm -hmm. be a really awesome opportunity. Like, who else am I? You know, rather than I'm nothing without this, it's like, what if I'm so much more without this? What What's the opportunity there? What can I dive into? What can I become? What am I already that I'm just not seeing? And I think those are the questions that start to change the energy around it and make it a little bit less scary. And that can actually open your mind to receive answers that you didn't have before. Yeah, and I think that one thing that you said before about the meditation actually applies to quitting as well. You said you have backup plans. You know, and by the way, for anybody who wants to like think about how to create good habits, How to Change by Katie Milkman is so good. It talks a little bit about the kinds of backup plans that you put into action. But I think the other thing is that we want to think about backup plans for our life as well, right? It's really good to explore other stuff because when you explore other stuff, you actually, you take away some of the uncertainty if like you get fired, for example. So if you've been exploring other opportunities or talking to other recruiters, for example, then, you know, not with the intention to walk away, but just because you want to explore, like, what are the other things I could be doing? Then when the thing you're doing goes away, like if you get fired, uh, it's not as scary because you have other things to move to. And also when it's right to quit, it becomes easier to actually walk away because you have something to walk toward. And it's always easier to walk away from things when you have something to walk toward. But that requires that you'll be exploring and finding backup plans. And I think that you make a really important point, which is that can apply to your identity as well. There are other people that you can be. There are other things you can do that will define you besides the thing that you're doing right now. And so the more that you can explore those things, the less entrenched and embedded in whatever cult it is that you're in, uh, you're going to be, and it's going to be easier for you to walk away when the time is right. Well, thank you so much for all of the value that you brought around this topic. I know for me, it came at a really pertinent time. And it's a question that I get a lot. Like, how do I finally quit my job? Or how do I know when it's time to leave this relationship? And so I think this will be really, really helpful. So for listeners that are interested in learning more about you and your new book, where's the best place for them to connect? 
So you can always go to AnnieDuke.com, which is my website. You can see links to buy my books there. You can see links to contact me there. I do try to respond to people who write in. I'm not perfect at it, but I attempt to reply to people who are writing in. I'm on Twitter at Annie Duke. Obviously, buy the book in your local bookstore or you know where you'd like to buy your books online. And then also, I would really love it if people would explore the Alliance for Decision Education. We're trying to bring the kinds of things that we're talking about today in terms of the way that we think about how do we make better decisions you know, in a world that's so uncertain and start to bring that type of education to kids in, in you know, K through 12. So instead of teaching them trigonometry, which you know, it's just hard. And I don't, I mean, I've never used trigonometry since then. What we'd like to do is get people to be better decision makers so they can create better lives for themselves. And that's what the mission of the, the Alliance for Decision Education is. I hope people will check that out also. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com 273. Your challenge for this week is to First, stop ignoring that nagging voice. You don't need to quit something just yet, but listen to it. Lean into it. Ask it what it wants. You might already know, but I've found that when I actually give stillness to this, give a little space for my inner knowing to speak to me rather than just trying to block it out or talk myself out of it or move through life like it's not saying anything at all because what it's saying feels too scary, I find out things about myself. I find out things about what I actually want. Sometimes I even find a deeper desire lying underneath the surface. So your challenge for this week is to not only give that space, but create that backup plan that Annie was just talking about. Even if you're just act like you're playing with a new idea, like what could you do instead? What if it was ripped out from under you and you didn't have a choice in the matter? what would you do then? The more time you spend brainstorming things like this, the less scary quitting will actually be. Because usually that security that we think we have in it, whether it's a bad relationship, a bad job, a bad investment, whatever, it's not real security at all. You're actually just tormenting yourself sticking with something that you don't like. What kind of security is that? You're already living one of your worst case scenarios with maybe one perk, (laughs) like maybe it's the money or the fact that you don't have to move out or you don't have to make another plan. But all you're doing by each day that you stick in this is proving to yourself that you're not the kind of person that takes actions on what you really want. So let me know how it goes. If you need a little pep talk, reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. You can support MindLove by supporting one of my amazing sponsors, which are all listed at mindlove.com slash sponsors. You can also join MindLove Premium at mindlove.com slash premium, where you get a whole backlog of exclusive episodes, over 50 of them that are only available for premium members, plus meditations, early release, ad-free listening, and other bonuses. And if you want to be my very best friend and possibly have your name mentioned on the show, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning into Your Higher Frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 